Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for his example uh, in this area. Uh, Lord, I just pray uh, that uh, we would find um, a balance with this issue and that we would be uh, an example to the people around us about how to handle offense, how to handle our anger, how to handle it when we are bothered. Uh, We thank you again for Jesus and for his example. It's in his name we pray, amen. A man uh, was checking his bags into the airport uh, and was absolutely just berating the employee who was helping him with his bags. Uh, talking down to him, yelling at him, mistreating him, just absolutely kind of verbal abuse almost. And uh, the the person that was helping with the luggage handled it very well. I mean, this guy's yelling at him and he's serving, he's doing the best that he can. And finally, this guy goes in to, to catch his flight in the airport. And this woman uh, said to the guy helping with the bags, she said, how on earth did you put up with that injustice? That guy was awful to you. And uh, the, the bag attendant said, man, it, it's easy. Uh, that guy's going to to New York, his bags are going to Brazil. Um, and uh, I, I think that is really true in this area of offense, that, that our, our angry culture, our offended culture, I feel like we think we're accomplishing one thing and we're actually accomplishing uh, something else. When we get angry, when we're offended, when we engage in these behaviors, we think we're accomplishing something good, but, but we're not really at all. Like We tend to think that we're accomplishing winning the argument. Well, watch, watch what I say, watch what I do. I'm gonna win the argument. What's really being accomplished is we're building walls. We think what we're accomplishing is making a point. I'm gonna make this point, I'm gonna make it strong. What's really being accomplished is we're losing influence. We think that we're accomplishing advocating our point of view. I've got this point of view that I wanna advocate for and really what's being accomplished is conversation is being shut down and so community is being shut down. We think we're accomplishing something good, but we're not. When we're offended, when we're angry, when we go down this road. I saw a Peanuts uh, uh, cartoon once where Lucy uh, said to Charlie Brown, I hate everything, I hate everybody, I hate the whole world. And Charlie Brown said, I thought you said you had inner peace. And she replied, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness, right? And I wanna make something kind of clear as we start the sermon for, for today. I thought we started it five minutes ago. Now we're really starting it. But um, I wanna make something clear that this is not a sermon series about never being angry. This is not a sermon series about never being bothered. This is not a sermon series about just going along and getting along and injustice, sin, wrong, it's all okay. That's not Christianity. All right, Christianity does not turn a blind eye to to sin. Let me say it another way, Uh, put it on the screen for you. Some things are worth being angry about. This is a sermon series about not being scandalizo. The King James, NIV doesn't translate it this way very often, but the King James will translate this Greek word scandalizo offended the most often. And this scandalizo word, it carries with it the idea of being led into sin by my anger. That I am so offended, I am so bothered, I am so angered by an issue that I am led into sin by that. And uh, it, it never describes Jesus. I'll tell you who it does describe. It describes the religious leaders who killed Jesus. So do you want to be like Jesus or you want to be like the Pharisees? right? It it describes them where they hear Jesus and they see Jesus's ministry and they were so offended. They were so angered. 
They were so bothered that they were led into sin by it, and their, their mission became to destroy him and to kill him. And so, like I said, it never describes Jesus. Jesus was never scandalizo. He was never led into sin by his anger, but he was bothered by some things. We know he was. He was angered by, by some things, but he was never led into sin by that. Let me show you a couple stories about Jesus because we want Jesus to be our example on this, all right? So I want to show you a couple of examples where we know Jesus was bothered. We know Jesus was angry, all right? Here, here's the first one. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, uh, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. it will, uh, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was with Messiah. Let's pause for a minute. This is like a high point for Peter. Right? Peter nails this answer. Jesus has become popular enough that he says, hey, what is the kind of scuttlebutt around about me? Who are people saying that I am? And it's Peter who absolutely knocks it out of the park. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is called the good confession of Peter. And you'll hear this a lot, like when someone places church membership or they decide to be baptized, we ask them to repeat uh, th this statement that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, because it's important. It is a good thing to base your, your life on. And this is a high point for Peter. And it lasts approximately one verse. All right, the text goes on. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter, get away from, Satan, get away from me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You are scandalizo. Uh, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And here's the low point right? Jesus is clear that this is what must happen to me. I'm going to be killed. Three days later, I'm going to be raised to life. And Peter, fiery Peter, right? If you've ever studied him, he, fiery guy says, no, no, this will never happen to you. And look at what Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And in the Greek, this is a good indication that Jesus was mad, right? If someone ever says to you, hey, Satan, knock it off. They're not pleased with you, right? All right, this is why you pay me to study all week, right? To come up with brilliant insights like that, right? You are a stumbling block. You are scandalizo. In other words, Jesus wasn't led into sin. But Peter was so offended by Jesus, so bothered by Jesus, that I think unintentionally, unintentionally, Peter falls into the scandalizo trap. He ends up making the wrong choice. He tries to dissuade Jesus from his mission. He tries to dissuade Jesus from his purpose, and it bothered Jesus. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. That's how much he loves his church. That he was on mission, he was on purpose, and not even his close friends and family could dissuade him from that. He's like, I've gotta go to the cross. I've gotta pay for sin. Three days later, I will rise again. But Jesus is on mission, and he's on purpose here. So he was bothered, 
He was angry when someone tried to dissuade him from that purpose because he loved humankind so much, but he was never led into sin by his anger. Example two. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to not, you must be careful to do every, uh, you, you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats at the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by, by others. But you do not, uh, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in this story, hypocrisy bothers Jesus. Right? As a matter of fact, this is the beginning of a sermon. I could have read the whole thing to you, uh, but didn't want to do that. The, the, the title of this sermon, I think, was Woe to You. Right? It is one woe right after another to, to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, to the, to the teachers of the law. And there are, if you ever wonder kind of a good definition of hypocrisy, there are some great definitions of hypocrisy in this text. That they do not preach, they do not practice what they preach. Great definition. Everything they do is for men to see. Great definition. They sit in Moses' seat. Moses brought the law. They sit in Moses' seat, and they act like they are coming down from heaven and bringing the law to everybody else, and everybody must do things their way. And it bothered Jesus because of what, they, because of what it did to other people. Hypocrites tend to be very hard on other people. And I like how Jesus says it in this text. They tie up heavy loads on people. Do it this way. Do it my way. This is the right way to do it. They tie up heavy loads and listen to what he says. They won't lift a finger to help. They love to hold people to these high standards and they offer no encouragement, no help. They are just judgmental and it hurts people. Some of you, this is your story. You attended this church right, that Jesus is describing here. You went to church and you felt like they judged you. They made, told you you had to live up to this standard and nobody encouraged you. Nobody helped you. Nobody, as Jesus says, lifted a finger to help. Bothers Jesus. Hypocrisy bothers him because of what it does to other people. It bothers Jesus because of what it does to the hypocrite. He makes this reference in this text to the phylactery. The phylactery was this box that you would wear on your forehead, uh, typically during your morning prayer time. And it was a reminder to you as you prayed that God's law was important and that God's law should be followed and that God's law should be obeyed. And uh, this was an Old Testament practice and it found its way into the New Testament. And the religious leaders and everything, they would uh, wear these phylacteries on. And like I said, it was typical that this would be during the morning prayer time. And I love what Jesus says. They didn't just wear theirs during morning prayer time. They loved to wear theirs like when they went to the marketplace to get groceries, Right? And they would make theirs especially wide and especially prominent. And they would go and they would buy groceries and they would wear this symbol of, hey, I love the law. I obey the law. I'm a good person. Look at me. And everything they did was for men to see. Most people kept it private. You'd never see someone wear that out in public. Not the religious leaders. 
They wanted to be sure that everyone saw it and that everyone knew what a good person they were. And so because they were so focused on what men could see, there was very little attention to the inside. So often the heart of the hypocrite, the mind of the hypocrite, the spirit of the hypocrite was in deep, deep trouble because everything was for outward appearance and and they they didn't pay attention to what was going on on the inside. And so hypocrisy bothered Jesus. He addressed it again and again and again. And if I ever were to get up and say, hey, joked about, you, uh, joked about this with you before that, hey, the title of my sermon today is, Woe to You. I've got 15 points, right? You would say, Steve's in a mood today, right? This is, did he not sleep last night or what? Steve's in kind of a mood today, right? And so Jesus is bothered. He is angry, but he is not scandalizo. He's never led into sin by his anger. I want to show you one more example. I hesitated to use this example, honestly, because we've been in this twice in the last year. Uh, But I want to show it to you one more time. We'll just be in it briefly, because I think it's a a great example of uh, Jesus's anger, but not scandalizo. All right, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna be to the son of David, they were indignant. They were offended. And listen, just listen to that statement. When the, these people would not be any fun at a party at all, right? When the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, they were indignant. You're not invited to my party, right? When they saw how awesome Jesus was, when they saw how many good things he did, they were offended, right? And I find that people that are easily offended, a lot of times they're like this, right? It's like, I don't think we want to hang out, right? So um, he says, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied, have you never read from the lips of children and infants, O Lord, you have called forth praise? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. In this case, Jesus is bothered by the mistreatment of others. So I told you before, people would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover. And instead of traveling with their livestock uh, to to sacrifice their livestock at at the temple, uh, they would often travel without livestock and they would buy it when they got there. And in, in this case, there are these money changers in the temple and they are overcharging people for their sacrifices. Uh, Jesus is mad about an economic system that took advantage of people. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, a place of prayer. And these guys were, they saw the opportunity of a lifetime. They saw the opportunity of a lifetime and it was an opportunity to get rich. And they took advantage of a worship practice in order to do that. Um, Like I said, this is not a sermon series. If you heard this last week, I, I, I didn't communicate clearly. This is not a sermon series about never being bothered by anything. It can't be because Jesus is our example. He's perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, and he was bothered by some stuff. Scott brought me this quote and I really love it. Um, it says this, offense is unavoidable. Being offended is a choice. As a follower of Jesus, we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, but as a follower of Jesus, you're going to be bothered. You're going to be angered. You're going to find things that bug you and all of that. The question is not, will you be bothered? Of course you're going to be bothered. We're bothered by things all the time. The question is this, 
will you be led into sin by your anger? Will you be led into sin by your anger? Will you allow that anger to take control and say, this person needs to be destroyed? This person needs to be taken out. This person, need, and, and you're led into sin because you're so angry on an issue that you're led into sin by that anger. So let's talk about, I'm gonna use the phrase, if you don't mind, um, I, I've got the microphone, so I guess it doesn't matter, but um, I, I don't know why I'm asking your permission, but um, holy anger. I, I like that phrase. I thought about using a lot of different phrases, but I want to talk a little bit about holy anger because Jesus was angered by some things. He was bothered by some things, but we know he was never led into sin by that anger. So what does holy anger look like? And um, I was joking earlier about 15 points, but I do have a few points here that I, w- I want to share with you. I, I started flipping pages and I'm not going to tell you. We'll just walk with me and we'll figure it out together, right? Here's number one. Holy anger is roused in defense of God's name. You see this in the example of hypocrisy best, that these religious leaders are hurting God's name by their behavior. Right? They're hurting others, they're hurting themselves, but they are also hurting God's name. And Jesus knows the Father. He knows how awesome God's name is, and he knows that there are some important things like eternity in the balance here. And so he does not want to allow God's name to be hurt because he wants people to love God's name and to follow God and to put their faith in God. And so Jesus teaches us that in a lot of ways, God's name is worth defending, right? Because eternity is at stake. And so Jesus uh, had this holy anger in defense of God's name. So be careful and let just, so I want to be super clear on this. Notice I'm not saying never do it. But I want to start out with, be careful about giving your life to defending a politician or a political party or a sports hero or a celebrity. Be careful about allowing your anger to give your life to defending these names. Now, I'm not saying never do it. Sometimes it needs to be done. I'm not saying never do it. I'm saying be careful about giving your life to that cause. Is there a better name you could give your life to defending? Is there a better cause you could give your life to defending? Is there a better issue you could give your life to defending other than, let's say, was Michael Jordan the greatest or LeBron James? Spoiler alert, it's Michael Jordan, all right? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Is it possible that there is a bigger, better issue to give your time to and your energy to? Jesus' holy anger was aroused in defense of God and in defense of the name of God, all right? Point number two, holy anger gets angry. It doesn't marinate in anger. So the anger that is sometimes associated with Jesus in the examples that I showed you, this is an anger that is described of something that just kind of rises up. You see something, it's wrong, it's hurting God's name, it's hurting others, it's hurting themselves. He sees it, it it comes up quickly and it burns away quickly. You see it in in the temple story that he comes in, he sees these guys taking advantage of the poor and it rises up this anger in him and then it dissipates very, very quickly. And that is a type of holy anger that just burns off quickly. It doesn't marinate. So let me be clear. If you find yourself still angry about a missed call from 1993, that might not be holy anger. 
If you find yourself still angry about an election that, let's say it happened just random, 10 years ago, one and a half years ago, you find yourself so angry with an interaction from someone from five years ago, this is an anger that simmers. And this is an anger that boils. And little word of warning here, this is a type of anger that will burn the whole house down. Be careful of this type of anger that just sits in your belly. And it, it's boiling, and it's simmering, and it's stirring. And at any given moment, it comes out. The type of anger Jesus demonstrates for us is it sees an injustice, it sees a wrong, it comes up in a minute, Jesus addresses it, and then it's done. And he moves on, all right? Next point, holy anger first sees the log in its own eyes. We just studied this in the Sermon on the Mount, but I think it's important that it is any kind of judgment, uh, any, kind of, uh, any kind of anger that leads to judgment, it ne- we need to engage in self-evaluation first. Before we ever judge anyone else, before we, any, any, before we ever go down that path, this is a type of anger that self-judges first, right? Holy anger is not just angry, it is grieved. That in biblical anger, there is an emotion of grief that surrounds the anger. Grieved about how people are being hurt. Grieved about how God is being perceived. Grieved about how this is affecting the one doing harm. If it's all anger and no grief, it's probably not from God. Holy anger is still governed by the laws of God's love. We talked about this a little bit last week, but let's talk about it again. There is no biblical scenario where God says, you're good, you can hate now. You've tried hard enough, you've tried long enough, and I know it's been difficult, but you're, it's cool, you can hate them now. In the worst case scenario in the Bible, where you would say, all right, this person is my enemy, the biblical mandate for us from our Lord and Savior Jesus is love your enemies. <laughs> so even in the worst case scenario, God's like, now oh, you gotta figure out how to love them too. Right? There is no biblical mandate where, all right, you are allowed to hate them now. So within the context of how we handle our anger, within the context of how we handle people that we're angry with, we are still confined by the law of God's love. Now, I had some great conversations this week, and I love having these conversations because some of this is really difficult to figure out. It's like, man, this relationship is non-existent, or this person hates me. How on earth do you fight for the cause of love in a situation where it's deteriorated, or, or a person's unsafe? I heard a scenario like that this week, where a, a per, I just think this person's unsafe for me and my family. What, what do I do? And I think Jesus gives us some great advice on this. Here's what he says. Pray for those who persecute you. That sometimes when a relationship has deteriorated or it's unsafe or they're just, for whatever reason, there can't be a relationship, the battle for love in that case is the battle for prayer. To continue to pray for them, to continue to to lift them up. And maybe their heart will change or maybe your heart will change. Maybe God will do something uh, good through that. All right, Holy anger confronts evil and does good. All right, so I missed this in the temple story for years and years and years, that Jesus drives out the temple changers, and then it says the blind and the lame came to Jesus, and he healed them. 
So Jesus isn't just driving the money changers uh, from from the temple courts. He is also engaging in um, restorative practices. He's healing people. He's doing incredibly kind acts. So here's, this is just me, but I am very suspicious of any anger that motivates us to rail against an issue, but doesn't motivate us to do any good over an issue. All right, so I'm just, this is just me now. I'm very suspicious of that. When there is an issue that so angers me that I feel free to go to social media and rail against it, but I don't feel motivated to do any good about it. And we live in a culture where this is so, so easy for all of us to hop onto Facebook and rail against an issue and uh, to, to, to raise our voice on an issue, but I don't have to give any money, I don't have to give any time, I don't have to make a contri- contribution, it's just words. It feels tense in here, are we okay? Right? That, that this is, pay attention to that. And ask yourself, does this sound like Jesus? Does this sound like Jesus to rail and rail and rail, but not lift a finger to help? Oh, wait, I'm quoting someone else now, right? So, so pay attention to that. And all of this, this whole idea that I'm talking about, and I maybe could have just given you the last page of this, of this manuscript because this is what it's all about. I want to introduce you to a principle. Maybe we've talked about it here before, but it is called restorative justice. Restorative justice. And this goes to our motivation for how our anger rears its head. That when we feel angry, when we get angry, when we see injustice, how do we respond? Restorative justice teaches us how to do that. It goes to motivation. And what it teaches is way, way back in your Bible, in Genesis chapter three, sin entered the world and sin brought destruction. Because of sin, things got broken. Sin entered the picture and the world has never been right since. Restorative justice says this is how God is trying to restore what sin has broken. So restorative justice says I don't want to contribute to the problem. I don't want to respond to sin with more sin. Right? I don't want to respond to sin with more sin. I want to res- respond to sin with a restorative attitude to the best of my ability. I want to contribute to the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. So it says that in anger about any injustice, that I am driven to action in order to bring restoration. That's the motivation that encompasses all of this. That when I am angry, I am seeking to bring restoration. I am not just seeking to rail. I am not just angry. My heart's desire is that I want to see things fixed. I want to see beauty restored. I want to see things back the way that God intended them to be. And if you're a parent, you get this, that your kids, I hope I'm not tattling on all of us here, but your kids sometimes make you mad. Your grandkids sometimes make you mad. And sometimes you have to discipline your kids and your grandkids. But the motivation behind the discipline is you love your kids and you want them to be good citizens. And so your discipline is not seeking to destroy them. Your discipline is not seeking to destroy them. You do not hate them. What you are trying to do with your kids and your grandkids is you're trying to restore them. 
You're trying to bring life to them. And so this is your motivation when you discipline your kids is I'm not trying to destroy you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to restore things the way that they should be. And our culture has gotten way, 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 one more, way off on this. Our culture's view of justice is not restorative. Our culture's view of justice is punitive and it's harsh. So in our culture, we disagree, you bother me, you offend me, you make me angry. angry. In our culture, our anger drives us to destroy each other, to ruin each other, to take away each other's careers. It's punitive. It's punishment-based. And listen, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are not called to participate in that. As a matter of fact, as followers of Jesus, we believe that if punitive action needs to be taken, if someone needs to be taken down a notch, if someone needs to be destroyed, as Christians, we believe God will handle that and he is the only one. Vengeance is mine says, thank you. Our goal as followers of Jesus, our goal as followers of Jesus is always restorative. We are trying to fix We are trying to bring peace. We are trying to bring grace. We are trying to fix what is broken. So restorative justice is always striving to make things better. Restorative justice is not seeking to destroy. It is not seeking to dismantle. It is not seeking to devastate. It is not seeking to ruin. Restorative justice says, I want to be part of the solution. And I want to, with my efforts, I want to help fix things. So, restorative justice desires to see the offender brought to repentance and receive a second chance. So if like you're following a story and it's something that really makes you angry and the person, the offender comes out and says, I am sorry, I am sorry, I'm asking for a second chance, I screwed up, I messed up, I'm sorry. And you immediately have this thought in your mind, not good enough. You need to be ruined. You need to be devastated. You need to be taken down. Spoiler alert, not restorative. Right, so restorative loves stories. Restorative justice loves stories where people come to a place of repentance. Restorative justice loves to see the offender get counseling and get help. That when you hear a news story about, man, I, I need counseling. I need help. I am seeking help. And you're like, not good enough. Not good enough. I want you to think about this. Is that restorative justice? It loves to see a change of heart. Restorative justice, and, I, and this is, I, know this won't, I know this is controversial, but restorative justice celebrates second, third, and fourth chances. Restorative justice is not in the destructive business. It's in the rebuilding rebuilding business. And you know where we got this? We got this from Jesus who saw us in our sin and saw us uh, in our, in, in our, in our poor decision-making. And Jesus could have said, I'm done. I'm going to destroy them. And Jesus said, no, I think I'm going to step into this and I think I'm going to restore it. I think I'm gonna give them another chance. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna help rebuild. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna bring something positive. 
and Jesus put on human flesh, and he came to this earth, and he began teaching us how to put it back together. Our culture needs this example. And they had it 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived this earth, and certainly people could read the Bible, but right now, the example is probably going to come from you as a follower of Jesus. We need this example of restorative justice. We've had enough people wanting to destroy, devastate, ruin, I'm gonna bury them, I'm gonna end them, their life's over. We've had enough of that. We need Christians to step in and say, I'm gonna be like my savior, and I am going to strive to bring restoration, healing, grace, and peace. And I promise you, this is not easy. All right, don't hear me saying, it's like, oh, you all know what to do, go do it, right? No, that's why I, I like to use the phrase I used last week about the fight for love. Because this is a battle, it is a fight to figure out how do you love someone that you're not in a relationship with? How do you love someone that you just see on the news and you have no relationship? How do you love someone where they're unsafe, right? How, how, do, you, how do you celebrate a second chance when, when this person has hurt you so badly? Now, it's not easy, it is not simple, but it's worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for that, man, I've got this thing in my heart that I wanna see this person destroyed. I wanna see this person ruined. I wanna see this person devastated. And it's this thing in my heart that says, no, that's not what Jesus calls me to. So I'm gonna step into the, I'm gonna step into the squared circle right, into the fighting match, I'm gonna figure this thing out. What it looks like to love that person. What it looks like to be at peace for that. What it looks like to bring restoration to that situation. And we're gonna need a lot of help. We have an example, Jesus. Uh, We're gonna need a lot of help, a lot of grace, and a lot of Holy Spirit. So let's pray for it right now. Heavenly Father, uh, we wanna figure this out. Our culture is so far away from you on this issue. That the minute we disagree, the minute somebody screws up, destruction is our first line of defense. May we, may the followers of Jesus in this room, may you begin to change our hearts if we've participated in this at all. May you begin to change our heart and uh, put into us a desire for restoration. And every situation is different and every situation is hard and it's, we don't know how to figure it out, but we do, we know, what, we, what we do know that we want is we want a heart that desires restoration. We want a heart that desires for things to be fixed for things to be made new, and for things to be put back together the way you intended them to be. But responding to sin with more sin, responding to hate with more hate, responding to anger with sinful anger is not going to do it. It's gonna make it worse. So we're gonna receive communion right now, Lord. And we're gonna celebrate that moment that Jesus said and remember that moment that Jesus said, nah, I'm gonna step into the mess 
and I'm gonna bring restoration. And we just wanna pray as we remember that right now, as we receive um, communion, that you would just place on our heart maybe a next step of this is what restoration looks like. Give us wisdom, guide us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're gonna receive communion here in just a minute. And uh, you're gonna find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. This is the moment that he stepped into the fray. I said, no, no, no. I could bring destruction, but I'm gonna bring restoration. And he is our example. And we wanna follow it. So uh, just what I said in the prayer, right now, um, you take those two cups and you just kinda think about uh, what Jesus might be saying to you about maybe how you interact on social media, how you interact with people in your life, how you interact at work, that are they hearing destruction or are they hearing a desire for restoration? What are they hearing from you? And just kind of consider that right now and then I'll come back up in a minute and we'll, we'll take communion all together as a church family.